Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. and along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And as we are watching the world scene as what's taking place around the world, we see so much is happening. When we look at the Far East and we look at China and Taiwan, when we look at the Mideast with Israel, and then of course we look here in the United States with what is taking place, Rick. So much is happening. We have a lot to cover today. What are some of the things that we'll be covering with Ken Timmerman and David Dolan. Well, we're certainly going to cover those stories, Jimmy. We're going to talk about uh, U.S. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan and the stir that that caused. And we're also going to talk about what's taking place in Israel right now uh, with the rockets coming out of Gaza and Israel's response to that. Yes. And we have a brand new partner today that we'll be talking about synthetic embryos being developed in test tubes by Israel and how that affects you uh, as the body of believers, as Christians, how it should affect us. There's so much to keep our eyes on. We do this in the light of God's prophetic word. Well, let's get started with Ken Timmerman. Ken Timmerman joins us. He's our expert in geopolitical affairs, and we have him on just about every week to talk to us. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Thanks for me on, Rick. It's uh, good to be with you. Well, Ken, the big story this week was the U.S. Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, visiting Taiwan. This was a very controversial visit. Could you tell us what happened? Well, visiting Taiwan, angering China, and setting off a confrontation in the Strait of Taiwan and a crisis in the Strait of Taiwan, such as we have not seen since 1995 in the Clinton administration. This is a very big deal. Now, Nancy Pelosi uh, announced uh, months ago that she was going to make this visit to Taiwan, and why shouldn't she do so? She's the Speaker of the House. She has a right to visit countries around the world. And, And by the way, in April, there was a delegation of U.S. senators that went to Taiwan, and the Chinese government said nothing. But this was different. She's the number three person in the United States for the succession to the presidency, right? So it is a big deal when the number three person in power in America makes a trip to Taiwan, especially when the Chinese themselves announce that they will consider this a provocation. And what they did as soon as she landed in Taiwan was announce a naval blockade of the island, such as really we have never seen quite before. Uh, Taiwan has a naval exclusion zone of about 12 nautical miles all around. It's about 100 miles between Taiwan and the Chinese mainland. And the Chinese said, look, we're going to hold uh, military drills just on the edge of that military exclusion zone. And in fact, in two parts, we're going to ignore it entirely and get to within nine or 10 miles of Taiwan's coast. Uh, They have been shooting missiles over Taiwan into the Sea of Japan. Uh, It's really quite a provocation and a buildup of military forces that uh, really we have never seen before. It is much, much bigger than what happened during the Clinton administration. At that time, the U.S. said we're not going to give in to Chinese uh, provocation or Chinese aggressiveness. Uh, We're going to sail an aircraft carrier group through the Strait of Taiwan, in other words, just off the coast of communist China, and let them know what's what. Today, we don't have the same military superiority that we did in 1995-1996. The Chinese actually have more naval ships than we do. Their navy is about 360 ships today. Ours is about 320. They are building their third aircraft carrier. We have 11 carriers, but only one 
that is in the Pacific, the USS Ronald Reagan. This has been a big win for communist China. Uh, they have demonstrated they can make the United States think twice about its commitment to Taiwan, which Nancy Pelosi went there to reinforce. We are not prepared to defend Taiwan. The Taiwanese are going to be on their own, a little bit like Ukraine, uh, but they're going to need advanced U.S. weaponry to hold the Chinese off. I think that is the real takeaway here, is that America will have to defend Taiwan through arms sales, not through deterrence, which we were able to do 20 years ago. Well, certainly a situation to keep an eye on and to pray for our leaders here in this country that they have the ability to handle this situation where it certainly looks like anything could happen and happen at any time, basically. Well, let's move away from China right now and talk about Russia and the Ukraine crisis. And we talked about this a little last week, but it looks like Russia is going to plan on withholding their energy exports from Europe right now, which is basically weaponizing their energy. And this is, is sought to divide Europe. Can you tell us what you know about that situation? Sure. They've been trying to divide Europe from the beginning of the war, and they've been pretty successful. The EU announced a deal in mid-July where all of the member states would reduce their consumption of Russian natural gas, of natural gas in general, by about 15%. But it's not sure that that's going to take place. And the country with the biggest vulnerability right now to a cutoff of Russian natural gas, which is now set to happen on the 5th of December, so just in a couple of months, is Germany. Germany is the economic powerhouse of Europe. And Germany is going to go dark if the Russians make good on their threat to cut off natural gas supplies to Europe. So right now you've got a squabbling going on between the rich countries, France and Germany in particular, and those countries which are going to be really impacted by an increase in inflation like Italy, the cost of borrowing Italy, Spain, Greece. Uh, and, and they're trying to figure out how they're going to sort this out. There is no quick and easy solution, uh, Rick. And the Europeans have found out uh, they could be quick to impose sanctions on Russia, but they are not quick to change their economy from a fossil fuel oriented economy to a renewable fuels economy. Remember, the, the, the Germans in particular uh, used to have, like Sweden, they used to have a park of nuclear power plants that produced uh, well over the majority of their electricity. The Germans have shut them all down. Mm. So they no longer have nuclear power as a, as a fallback position. Even the green parties in Sweden and Germany have been talking about restarting the reactors, but they won't be able to do that between now and December. So the Russians actually have a strong hand here and Europeans are squabbling amongst themselves how to respond. Well, Ken, your answer there actually begs the question to me anyways, what is the status of Europe right now? We see China's emergence. We see Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, and Russia, uh, all these different traditional non-superpowers coming together and ha gaining influence in the world. And we also see what may be the decline of America's influence in the world. Where does Europe stand right now? To, to use a, an image here for you, uh, the European leaders are kind of huddled together around a fire out in the middle of the woods uh, looking over a lake. And they're just hoping that uh, the lake is not going to freeze over entirely. Uh, they are very, very worried. They are in the dark. 
Uh, they are pretending that bad things are not about to happen, but they all know that bad things are going to happen. They're not taking the kind of preventive measures that they need to take. Uh, they need to be uh, restarting those nuclear power plants, as I just mentioned. Uh, they need to be expanding um, imports of natural gas from places like Algeria, but also from the United States. But look, Joe Biden is not making it easy for them. Uh, the Biden administration has forbidden U.S natural gas providers from exporting natural gas to Europe. Because he says, well, the prices in the U.S. are too high. Uh, we don't want to exacerbate that and make it bad for American consumers leading up to the November midterm elections. So all in all, things are not going well for Europe. Things are going well for Russia. The Russian economy, they are doing better today than they were doing before the war. They are making more money from their oil and gas exports than they were before the invasion of Ukraine. This has astonished many people. While the sanctions are important, they have not, not uh, shut down the Russian econ economy. On the contrary. Well, it does seem at this time that Europe is very reactive and not necessarily operating from a position of strength in the world. Well, Let's move on to Iran right now, and it looks like the United States has decided one last time that they are going to try again for a nuclear deal with Iran. In fact, the Russian envoy that has helped to facilitate these talks says the talks are very serious. Well, I suppose they are. The Iranians have dropped their prerequisite that the United States take the Revolutionary Guards off the terrorism list. They're saying now, well, the U.S. could take them off gradually, piece by piece. And my guess is that the Biden White House will agree to that. But look, the Iranians also are playing a winning hand. Uh, this past week, they announced that their nuclear weapons program is so advanced that they are now capable of making weapons and, should the United States threaten them, of destroying New York. This is the first time they have ever made a military threat to the United States homeland. Hmm. They have made a military threat that they would destroy New York. That is something new. Uh, and they have done this quite officially through the foreign ministry. So it's not just an idle comment by some uh, Red Guards general someplace. This is, this is official policy in Iran. They're talking about actually building an arsenal of nuclear weapons. And the discussion inside the policy community, Rick, really, is whether the Iranians have, have turned a strategic corner, where they've made a, a decision uh, like North Korea that the price of sanctions is not so overwhelming that uh, the benefits of becoming an independent nuclear weapon state uh, don't overpower it. So that is what they have has held them back in the past. They've been worried about sanctions. They've been worried about being frozen out of world markets and the rest. And they're now seeing that they've got this alliance with Russia, China, uh, India in certain places for their oil and gas exports uh, that, that uh, are not being hit by U.S. sanctions or European sanctions, and they might just well decide to uh, let those sanctions continue and become a nuclear weapon state. So that's what's really happening here. The Iranians have less interest now to make this nuclear deal than the United States. And when that happens, the United States tends to make really, really bad agreements. Well, another scenario that is, to say the least, very serious, and I certainly hope and pray that our administration here in the United States is up to the task of handling it. Well, Ken, as always, so much going on in the world today from a geopolitical perspective. We thank you so much for your insight and for sharing it with our listeners. We look forward to talking to you again soon. 
Uh, thanks so much, uh, Rick. We live in dangerous times. Later on, we'll be taking a look at these nations as we take a look at the book. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, our Middle East News Update with David Dolan, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. U.S. and EU envoys have urged Ethiopia's government to resume electricity and banking services in the Tigray region. Civil war had raged for months, displacing over 2 million people. Tigrayans have dealt with basic food shortages since June of 2021. Eric Foley with the Voice of the Martyrs Korea keeps in contact with Tigrayan Christians. One man planted a church in prison after being taken with no warning. Ask God to keep working in Ethiopia despite the suffering. And what happens when you send a Bible to Iran? Well, God uses it to change multiple lives. Heart for Iran's Mike Ansari says one woman received a Bible and sent it on to a troubled youth. A 15-year-old girl was contemplating suicide, and the woman told her, you don't want to commit suicide because God loves you. When the young girl began reading the Bible, everything changed. She came to Christ and found hope. Seven bucks sends a Bible to Iran. Visit our website to get involved. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Well, much of the time we focus on the nation of Israel and the Middle East in general. And uh, when we do that, we usually talk to Dave Dolan. Dave has joined us today. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome, Rick. Always glad to be on your program. Well, David, the big story today, and it's coming out of Israel, is uh, the attacks from Gaza towards Israel and an Israeli response. Can you tell us how this uh, situation began and what's going on right now? Well, Rick, it really began uh, overnight on Sunday last uh, week when uh, the Israelis arrested the leader of Islamic Jihad. Now, that's the strongly Iranian-backed uh, terror group based in the Gaza Strip, whose overall leader is in Damascus, Basim Assadi. He was arrested and he was dragged to a truck and a dog bit him and that went viral on the internet and all the uh, Arab world was screaming about that. And uh, then yesterday afternoon, Friday afternoon, Israeli jets hit an apartment building in the Gaza Strip where the northern commander of that group, Islamic Jihad, uh, lived. He was killed. The Palestinians say a few others in the building were as well. And then a few hours later, as expected, Islamic Jihad started firing rockets into Israel. At first, the near the Gaza Strip, Ashdod, and those areas. Then later in the evening, around 9 in the evening, rockets started to be fired at the Tel Aviv area. The government immediately closed the International Ben-Gurion Airport to all flights. 
and it, uh, they called up 25,000 reserve soldiers. That's very significant uh, because it means they're expecting a prolonged fight. And in fact, later in the evening, several Israeli defense leaders said that. Uh, expect rockets for some days, they told the people, um, you know, listen to all our instructions and um, we're going to try to deal with this threat. It's uh, uh, very uh, frightening for the Israeli public, of course, to have these rockets coming down. But the defense officials also said they had concrete evidence that Islamic Jihad was planning a major attack upon Israel and the government decided not to wait for that is what they said so they they made that case and of course uh, iran being the strong backer of islamic jihad we got to see how they react does their puppet force hezbollah in lebanon get involved and most importantly at this juncture does hamas that rules the gaza strip and is also very close to iran not as close as as islamic jihad but definitely pays much attention to them they send them money and training and weapons um does hamas get fully involved in which case we could have a major war here so we'll just have to see by the way they're calling this operation breaking dawn so we'll see what breaks in the coming days. Well, David, we will certainly keep our eye on that situation, and we ask our listeners to pray for Israel as this is a serious situation there. Well, if I want to continue on and we want to talk about Iran and Hamas, which would basically be an Iranian proxy supporting and basically funding that war against Israel, but there's also an even larger existential threat in Iran's pursuit of nuclear weapons, and we've talked about that quite a bit on this program, but one of the things we haven't talked about so much is the fact that this could basically start a Middle Eastern nuclear arms race. Well, indeed, there's reports in the Arabic press this week that Saudi Arabia continues to speak to Pakistan. It's very, very close ally for many years now, both Sunni Muslim nations. Uh, Pakistan has actually vowed to defend Saudi Arabia if Iran were to uh, ever directly attack it. Well, they did attack its oil fields a couple years ago, but if they did something even further. So there's tension there and concern that the Saudis do want to get a nuclear weapon and that uh, the continuing struggle with Iran may prompt that to happen, that it might be built in Pakistan and then shipped down to Saudi Arabia. Of course, Saudi Arabia is an ally, as it were, uh, at least unofficially at present with Israel against Iran. But uh, as uh, various articles pointed out, that could change overnight. The Saud family could be tossed out. They have a lot of enemies. And um, then these uh, weapons would fall into hostile anti-Israel hands, as happened, in fact, in Iran when the Shah was overthrown in 1979. And Rick, speaking of Iran, there was this summit in uh, Tehran right after Joe Biden left Israel to go to Saudi Arabia. And uh, the Turkish president was there, Erdogan, and of course, Putin, Vladimir Putin flew in. And it's been noted that since then, Russian attacks in northwestern Syria have been massively stepped up. Their air force is attacking uh, Sunni Muslim opponents of the Assad regime there. And also um, uh, Turkey has stepped up its actions against the Kurds in northeast of Syria. So that border area is heated up considerably and it's spot that these three leaders made an agreement for that to happen. And that might also, Rick, be a pretext to get everybody looking elsewhere while an attack on Israel is launched. So a lot of tension throughout the entire region. 
Well, David, as you mentioned, that summit, that we did cover that last week. We talked about it quite a bit. Uh, Syria, though, is caught in the middle in certain ways between not only uh, Israel, who uh, they have conflicts with at their northern border, but they are also risking an all-out conflict with Russia, Turkey, and Iran. Well, Russia's pretty much on Syria's side, on the Assad regime side, pretty firmly. So they don't have to worry about that so much. But Turkey and Syria have a lot of tensions. And the news report said that the Assad regime said to Erdogan, do not attack the Kurds in northeastern um, Syria. Uh, We'll take care of that in the future if we feel the need. We don't want your forces crossing over into our territory any longer. And of course, they've done that over the past few years. So that could be another war front uh, in the future. But Russia standing pretty firmly behind Assad. And of course, the Syrians have spent maybe 10,000 of their own soldiers to fight in Ukraine. Uh, so that alliance is is pretty strong. But some tensions between Russia and Turkey, and that's existed for several years now as well, with the Russians also not Uh, wanting to see Turkey cross into Syria. So uh, we'll just have to keep an eye on that. Obviously, the Kurds don't want to see that happen as well. Well, we certainly see some tensions now, but students of Bible prophecy will realize that all of these nations, Turkey, Russia, Iran, Syria, all of these nations will be involved, as it says in Ezekiel 38, when they come against Israel during the tribulation period. Isn't that correct? That's what the scriptures say. And again, that was written, what, 2,500 years ago. And here we see Persia and Russia (laughs) in alliance. We see Syria full of Russian soldiers now and uh, Turkey moving in an anti-Israel way over the past 10 years. Uh, It's been a little better recently, but still pretty strongly that way. Yes, all the places or pieces are definitely falling into place. Another thing we know from Scripture, and that's from the book of Daniel, is that there will be a temple standing during this tribulation period. And very interestingly, just this year, during the Hebrew year, and we'll kind of mention this with Winky Madad when we talk to him next, but just this year, they've had a record number of Jewish visitors to the Temple Mount, essentially raising the collective consciousness of the Jewish people for the awareness of the need for a temple. And not just a record number, but an unprecedented number, Rick, uh, in any one year. And as you say, they measure this from the Jewish New Year, uh, you know, which is Rosh Hashanah, usually in September, to the next one. So we have one more month to go in this Jewish year. But so far, over 40,000 Jews have visited the Temple Mount, most of those Orthodox Jews going up to pray, but other Jews go up there as well just to visit or look around. Uh, The previous yearly record was around 30,000. So this is 10,000 more so far, and there's another month left, as I said, and that's, of course, the month of Elul, uh, which is the uh, holy month leading up to Rosh Hashanah and uh, Yom Kippur and the Feast of Tabernacles. And there's always an even greater um, stampede, as it were, up to the temple, not quite stampede, but uh, people visiting the Temple Mount Jews during that month. So they may even go over Hmm. 50,000, whereas the previous record was 30,000. So it's quite unprecedented. Uh, Still, Jewish groups complain that only Jews have to go through the full security, and that's true. They have metal detectors, their bags are 
fully inspected and they can't take any prayer books or any religious article artifacts, even prayer shawls are confiscated. And none of that is done to the Muslims who uh, go up to the Temple Mount, of course, Haram al-Sharif in their language. And um, they go through some security, but nothing is strong. So there's protests over that. And the government still of Israel still doesn't promote uh, Jewish visits to the Temple Mount, but they've been looking the other way a little bit more in recent years, and uh, obviously many Israelis are taking advantage of that fact and uh, record numbers going up there. Well, David, we are so glad that you are able to do the Middle East News Update with us every week, and it certainly does seem like the stage is being set and the curtain is about to go up on God's End Time scenario. Every time you talk with us, things become more and more clear and things become set into place. So we thank you for doing that. We look forward to talking to you again soon. And we thank the Lord that he gave us his word and we can know these things in advance and watch them unfold. God bless you. We're going to take a break right now on Prophecy Today, but when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what's taking place in Israel with Winky Madad. Stay tuned right here on Prophecy Today Radio. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy D. Young Jr. I'm looking forward to this next half hour. Israel Madad will be coming to give us the latest update on what I believe is a growing rift in Israel and Israeli society between the religious Jews and the secular Jews. And Mike Delaparudi will be coming to give us some information pertaining to scientists that want to play the part of God. That's all ahead right here in this next half hour. But first, Winky Madad. Israel Madad joins us today. He comes to us from the heart of Israel. He actually lives in what we call Judea and Samaria. He's an expert on all things Israeli. He talks to us about politics and about Jewish life. Uh, Israel, thank you for joining us today. Again, a privilege and an honor to be here with you and the listening audience. Now, we know your formal name is Yisrael. But you, but you go by Winky. So Winky, uh, Hak Sameach. Is it okay if I say that as we approach the coming holiday of Tisha B'Av? Not at all. It's a fast day. And in fact, we've been in the period of nine days since the first of the Hebrew month of Av in a semi-morning period. We do not eat meat, drink wine, and I am not shaving since the 17th of Tammuz which was almost three weeks ago. That's a remarkable thing uh, for a, a national group of people to engage in such mourning customs despite 2,000 years passing since that event of the destruction of the temple. 
Well, then, good. Would you explain to us a little bit more? You know this originates uh, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, but if you could go on and just kind of explain a little bit more about Tisha B'Av to our listeners, if you don't mind. Sure. Well, Tisha B'Av literally means in Hebrew, the ninth of the month of Av. The Av month in the Bible is the fifth month, uh, because we start actually in the Bible, we start counting from Nisan, uh, the month in which Pesach or Passover is, is celebrated. But I, we won't get into that. And according to our tradition, which is written both in the Bible and in the Talmud, both the first and the second temples, the first back in, I think, around 586, if I remember my history well, or I might be off. And uh, as you said, in the seven, year 70 of the Common Era, uh, both the first and second temples were destroyed. And there's also a tradition that the Bar Kokhba fortress retreat at a place called Betar, south of Jerusalem, uh, was also destroyed on the 9th of Av. So in our national consciousness, uh, whether it's off by a day or two, it doesn't really make much of a difference. We note that the major confrontations between Israel and invading forces, whether it's the Babylonians or the uh, Romans, and in losing our national independence and having our temple destroyed, occurred on one day, which then, in my introduction, as I noted, for observant Jews, uh, there's a lot of mourning outward mourning characteristics. Like I said, Orthodox Jews will not shave during the three weeks, during the nine days leading up to the fast day, which, Rick, is a 25-hour fast day, just like Yom Kippur. So no water and no food for 25 hours. In the summer, it takes a little bit of fortitude and stamina to do that sometimes. And so we're seared in our memory, our national consciousness, that we are a people who lost our political and religious independence, yet we still yearn and hope that it will be restored all. Well, Winky, you say this originates uh, based on the destruction of the temple and the mourning for that period, but unfortunately, the history of the Jewish people is filled with unfortunate circumstances, horrible things that have happened, not the least of which was the Holocaust. So just is this only mourning for the temple or is this mourning for other things as well? Well, what has happened is that on the 9th of Av, there is a special collection, can I call it, of prayers which are basically lamentations. The book of Jeremiah, the book of lamentations in the Bible, and various, I can't call them poems, but literature throughout the Middle Ages in incidents where there were pogroms, or for example, when the Crusades in 1097, 98, 99 began to march across Europe, German communities were almost wiped out and completely. And so we have a whole collection that go, spans a period of 1,500 years or more. I can certainly appreciate uh, that Israel does have a lot to mourn 
for throughout its history. Uh, you say it focused on the temple, uh, the destruction of the temple. That's where it originated. I'd like to kind of zero in on the temple and maybe the collective consciousness of the Jewish people and the nation of Israel is at an all-time high, it would seem, with a, a new record being set this year in Jewish visits to the Temple Mount. That is correct. Since the uh, beginning of the Hebrew year, which is, of course goes back to September last year, because we count uh, the ritual year as beginning with the month of Tishrei, which usually is around uh, September, uh, which leaves us, of course, with about, about another month and a half left. We have over 40,000 recorded visits of Jews uh, within the Temple Mount. This is based on the police counting. We also have a secondary backup by the Waqf, which every day also counts the number of uh, stormers and invaders and breakers in who go into the Temple Mount precincts. Uh, we check out their uh, their Twitter accounts, and it's sort of a, uh, a backup account. Uh, of course, this is not every single one. I mean, there are some people, actually, I know, who go up every day, okay? But uh, this is a vast difference from when I started off 50 years ago, when uh, maybe there were 100 people a year who were able to go up in the early 1970s. It's a major difference. Uh, this program, over the past two decades now or more, has been following this. So our veteran listeners know that uh, there's been an ever-increasing physical presence of Jews on the Temple Mount, raising of consciousness, various Temple Mount and Temple-connected programs of educational value. And uh, it's one of the modern miracles, quote-unquote, of Jewish national re renaissance that this is taking place. Well, I'd like to take this uh, opportunity to switch to kind of a more political take. Uh, we've talked about the, the religious motivation and why you are so interested in the Temple Mountain. We certainly understand that and appreciate that here on Prophecy Today Radio. What I'd like to talk a little bit about the political side of it. And I notice, and this is, the media calls this an ultra-nationalist right-wing movement in Israel. There's a party that has 13 seats called Religious Zionism. And uh, they're headed by what, again, the media calls an extremist, Itamar Ben-Gavir. I'd like to get your take on uh, him and his party and, and what that means in Israel. And, and again, your opinion is what I'm asking for, not necessarily what the media says about him. Well, the media talk or the framing, how the media frames their subjects, is, a, is an issue that we used to discuss because... It's an extension of, as you said, a left-wing political view, which most of the media, at least the mainstream media, talk about the three television channels and the four main dailies here, uh, still are strongly left of center. So anything nationalistic, anything religious, anything conservative is extreme, radical, uh, irrational, dangerous, and... Uh, Arab political parties that have ties with the Muslim Brotherhood or communists, as they still do, including one Jewish member of Knesset who's a communist, right? That's okay. That's sort of, oh, that's normal. 
Uh, so it's part of the life here, the public life, if I can say, the public political life, I could say. And we have to deal with that. But uh, people should be aware. Don't listen to adjectives. Listen to verbs and facts. Hmm. And then make up your own decision how you want to believe these people are. Naturally, Ben Gavir is a much more right wing than Netanyahu. Okay, let's let's put it that way. And he's much more radical than some of the mainstream religious parties as well. But the Supreme Court decided he could run for office. The Supreme Court is the leftists pedestal standee of uh, liberalism and democracy. And if the court says so, that's the end of the matter. I'm sure if Mr. Ben Gavir or anybody else would do something illegal, outright racist or violent, that he would be in trouble. At the present moment, he is not doing that. And therefore, he's a legitimate political figure who can run for office. And the left-wing media should look for better things to talk about. Well, Winky, we have you on our program for all these many years because we do appreciate your opinion, and we know and we have learned to trust your opinion. So we thank you for weighing in on that. Well, thank you for being on the program. We look forward to uh, talking to you again soon, Winky. Again, uh, I thank you uh, for having me on, and goodbye to you and our listeners. Israel Madad, uh, affectionately known as Winky, uh, he really does understand the situation in Israel, I do believe, and the reason I had him on this week is because I do believe that Scripture does give us an indication that Israel will be divided into two Jewish states, one the religious and one secular. That is prophesied that has never taken place in the history that will be brought back together, and that is in the future, and I think we see that as things are unfolding in the land right now. Well, uh Looking at Israel, this last week I read a report about an Israeli lab that has grown synthetic mouse embryos. Now, usually, and this is what we do, we all have a worldview. We have a way that we look at what's happening in the world. And because we use the Bible, we should have a biblical worldview. And as we understand prophecy, we should have a biblical prophetic worldview. So using and looking at items and uh, newspapers on the media, uh, sometimes things pop up and you just see a red flag and you're not really sure why. And when I saw this story, there were red flags all over it. So I wanted to get in touch with an expert that would help me in this. Mike Della Peruti is a pastor in New Jersey. He has, uh, for 22 years, he's been a pastor. He is an adjunct professor at Shasta Bible College. He's working on his doctorate at Clark Summit University. He's written a book, The Danger of Puberty Suppression. And we're going to get into that later because that's a whole other uh, aspect of uh, having a worldview and understanding what's taking place. But from my understanding and talking with Pastor Mike, when I looked at this, I sent this article to you because they are growing in Israel uh, using uh, synthetic mouse embryos complete with brains and beating hearts by using stem cells taken from skin. The first question, how should we view this latest scientific breakthrough? Well, Jimmy, thank you for having me on the show. And uh, you're correct. You do look at the world through different lens. Uh, one way people look at it is through a humanistic worldview that has its roots in evolution. And 
Another way is to look at things biblically, and these two views are incompatible, because humanism it not only considers our existence to be the byproduct of chance, so life is devalued from the word go, but it also views humans as the highest form of life. In, in their minds, human beings answer to no one. A biblical worldview mm. considers all life to be the intentional creation of an all-powerful being who's sovereign over us. So we are still, as human beings, bearers of God's image, we're stewards of his creation, and we answer to him, and that alone would cause me to question this line of experimentation, especially as it presently stands with virtually no boundaries. So if you ask how should we view this breakthrough, if you answer that question from a humanistic perspective, as most scientists do, Mm -hmm. they have no issue with it. Mm. Uh, For them, they would argue that they have a right to do it, along with other very ethically suspect activities. For example, in related news, just two years ago at the University of Buffalo, scientists injected human stem cells into a developing mouse embryo in order to create a a chimera, or a human-mouse hybrid. you got to admit, these breakthroughs are are mind-blowing. A generation ago, this was the stuff of science fiction. But the problem is we're rushing forward so quickly, no one's taking the time to ask, should we be doing it? For example, you don't throw your, your child a set of car keys on her 17th birthday and say, hey, take it for a spin. You'll learn the rules as you go, and if you happen to blow a red light and wipe out a family in a crosswalk, well... That's the price of progress. You'll mm-hmm. eventually figure it out. No, we make sure the rules are clearly understood before they get behind the wheel in order to prevent them from blazing a path of destruction, and that is not happening with this research. And that alone is a, a major cause of concern for me and others who approach it from a biblical worldview. Now, Mike, why would scientists want to do something like this? Why would, what would motivate someone to try to create a synthetic mouse without a sperm or egg or mingle human and animal DNA together? Well, the reason they gave for the recent mice experiments in Israel and Buffalo is the hope that this research will eventually result in the ability to grow replacement human organs in an ethical manner. So the sales pitch for these experiments would sound like this. Imagine a world where your doctor informs you you're in kidney failure. A hundred years ago, that would mean certain death. Seventy years ago, it would mean dialysis for the rest of your life, which will be cut short. For the past 50 years, it meant dialysis unless we could find a suitable kidney donor. But thanks to this new research, maybe someday it will result in your doctor taking some of your DNA, placing an order, and within a couple of weeks, Two brand-new kidneys will be delivered to his office, a perfect match for you, and off you go. On the surface, that sounds great. I mean, who would ever object to something like that? Right. The, the problem that I just described for you is that this is situational ethics, which means it's purely subjective. If we boil down this argument to its principle, it sounds like this. We humans have a right to do whatever we want to do. Mm-hmm. If there's a chance that the end product advances our species, or improves our quality of life. So this is a problem. Let's not forget the same rationale was used by Joseph Mengele to Mm -hmm. justify horrific crimes against humanity in World War II. It was used by Alfred Kinsey to justify the sexual torture of children in America. They were both scientists performing experiments in the name of advancing humanity or improving the quality of life, but they had no boundaries. So this is where the two worldviews collide. 
If this line of of experimentation is left unchecked, what are some of the potential dangers? Well, for starters, now more than ever, we have to be very careful about how we define life. Because whatever definition we apply to a synthetic mouse developed in a lab today is going to be applied across the board tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And at present, from a scientific perspective, the two criteria necessary to recognize something as living or beating heart and detectable brainwave mm-hmm. activity. Those are the measurables. Now, until these recent experiments, the best shot scientists had at growing and harvesting human organs was from a viable human embryo. So try to imagine this scenario, one where human sperm and egg meet, regardless whether it's in a fallopian tube or test tube, and the result is a living human being is conceived, one that will mature in time unless you abort it and harvest its organs to benefit others. Now, sadly, too many of our countrymen are are okay with abortion, and that's a separate but related issue. Mm -hmm. But fortunately, thanks to general revelation, human conscience, or even something humanists now dub the yuck factor, many people, not all, but enough people have a serious reservation when it comes to growing humans in a lab for the sole purpose of harvesting their organs. That's the ethical problem they're referring to in this article. So the question is, how do we get around that? How do we manufacture replacement organs without killing a living human being? The two different tests with mice in Buffalo and Israel are attempts to resolve that problem. One way to avoid the problem of killing a human in order to harvest their organs is to manipulate animals to grow human organs. A second way is to grow the organs in something that is non-living and then harvest them because technically you can't kill something that's not alive. Mm. The experiments in Israel, they represent an attempt at the latter. By discovering a way to manipulate stem cells of mice so they begin to develop into an embryo apart from a sperm and egg, these scientists were able to produce something they call a synthetic mouse. Pay attention to that word. Not a real mouse. And these synthetic mice can develop to a certain point in mouse years, it's like the first trimester, complete with beating heart and brainwave activity, but the embryos are not viable. And that's the key. It means in an ideal situation, they would not survive. And to them, that's success, because if they can do that with synthetic mouse embryos, the next step is to duplicate it with synthetic human embryos. Mm. That's how they're going to attempt to circumvent any ethical concerns about harvesting and growing and harvesting organs. And they're not concealing their intentions. They come right out and admit this in the article. They're already calling these things artificial embryos and synthetic mice because they're not viable. And their argument is that the embryo isn't technically alive, in spite of the fact that it has a beating heart and functioning brain. So why shouldn't we be able to harvest its organs in order to benefit someone else's quality of life? And yes, we can do this, but the question is, should we do it? Mm. Does ability equal morality? So here are some dangers. I'll leave you thinking with this. What happens when scientists use human stem cells to grow a synthetic or a non-viable human embryo complete with brainwave activity and a detectable heartbeat? Is it murder to kill them and, and harvest their organs for the benefit of someone else? Mm. Do these synthetic human embryos have any human rights? What if we figure out a way to make them viable? Would that change anything? And at what point do they become people? 
Those are some good questions to ask before we do something that causes future generations to look back on us the way we look back on Mengele. And all this is related to the recent phenomena of transhumanism. Wow. Can you explain what you mean by transhumanism? Well, this is another conflict between a biblical worldview and a humanistic one. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me answer your question with a question. Can a non-human being ever produce, ever proceed from a human being? Can something non-human ever come from a human? From a biblical perspective, the answer is no, no. it's impossible. From Genesis 1 to Acts 17 to Romans 5 and everywhere in between, the Bible teaches that all human beings and only human beings proceed from Adam. And it also means every human being bears the image and likeness of God. Mm-hmm. But when you pose that same question to a humanist, can a, a non-human being ever proceed from a human being, you get a very different answer. Because not only is it possible, but in order for the theory of evolution to be true, it is necessary <laughs> that human beings eventually evolve into non-human beings. Evolution teaches humans once evolved from something non-human in the past. Transhumanism believes humans will evolve into something in the future. And not only that, but transhumanism is a concept that we played a passive role in, in evolution in the past. The change happened to us, but this time through technological implants and genetic modifications, we can create enhancements that will result in a better, stronger, more highly developed species. And believe it or not, there are some ethical concerns with that line of reason. Oh. First of all, biblically, transhumanism attempts to improve on something that already bears the image and likeness of God And it really doesn't get any better than that, you know? Logically, you can only go down from there, not up. Mm. That brings us to another problem, because regardless of whether science is trying to change someone's gender or change their species, science is messing around with the image of God, and that's a line you don't cross without repercussions. Third, from a, a humanistic perspective, if you want to appeal to Darwin, to Darwin will go. According to Origin of Species, when a, when a new species emerges, in order to survive, the first thing it has to do is eradicate its parent species. That's why Darwin has claimed missing links are missing. The parent species is eliminated by natural selection. So if you're a human promoting transhumanism, be careful what you wish for. And finally, from a biblical perspective, Scripture reveals that there will be a time in the future when technological or genetic modifications in the form of a mark on the right hand or the forehead Mm -hmm. are mandated. There'll be no bodily autonomy in the tribulation. And not only is that technology being developed as we speak, but philosophically, it's also being justified through transhumanism. Wow. And folks, we've been conditioned. If you watch any movies today, uh, we are being conditioned right now to accept everything that Mike has just talked about. What can believers do about this situation, Mike? Well, I might sound a little skeptical here, but I'm going to warn you, don't rely on the government for solutions. (laughs) (laughs) Last year, the U.S. Senate considered a law that would ban the creation of human chimeras, the the human-animal hybrids. The bill specifically forbids scientists to use human stem cells to create non-human life with human faces. And yes, they're working on that. Can you imagine an industry where you can Mm. order a customized cat or dog with human facial features? Mm. But after debate, the leaders of our country decided that restrictions were unnecessary. Translation, there are no boundaries on this right now. 
So the church, specifically the American church, has a responsibility to watch and to pray. We can't throw our arms up to complicated ethical scenarios and say, ah, it's not my problem, because we're going to be judged with our people. So watching involves being able to read and understand the culture, and not just where we are at present, but also where we're headed, and that takes time, and it takes effort, and it doesn't happen by accident. And it also involves a willingness to sound the alarm, like the watchman on the wall, and that's not easy, and it's probably not going to win us any popularity contests. Also understand, it's not enough to say something's wrong because, well, it feels wrong. We need to carefully examine the issue and offer an intelligent response with gentleness and respect. In a nutshell, ignorance is sin, not bliss. That's watching. And finally, praying involves faith, because in the end we need to recognize that God is sovereign. He is in control. And so hopefully taking a look at an issue like this will motivate believers to call out to Almighty God on behalf of our people, because we're here for such a time as this. Great stuff. Thank you so much. We're going to have you back. Uh, first of all, I mean, I, we could talk about this all day, as you and I have discussed, but uh, we're going to have you back. I want to talk to you about your book, uh, which can be found on Amazon, The Danger of Puberty Suppression. We'll talk about that in the future. And Mike Della Peruti, uh, we're going to have you back and uh, we're going to discuss this in the future. Thank you so much for sharing this with us, folks. We need to be aware, and I like all of Mike's points that he brought to us at the end, how we as a body can, uh, we need to be aware, we need to be praying, we need to be watching, and we need to be on the wall talking to others in love and meekness and humbleness, but expressing uh, where this world is headed. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you again very soon. Look forward to it. Thanks for your time. Well, we got to take a break, and when we come back, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., along with my brother Rick. We have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word, and Rick, you know, as I listened to our first hour of broadcast partners and what they had to cover, uh, we are uh, seeing things happening, taking us very close to what we would always consider, you know, on a daily basis, on a moment by moment, we're looking for that sound or listening, I guess, for the sound of the trumpet and looking for the, the appearing of Christ in the heavenlies for the, when the rapture will take place. But as we continue to grow, we want to make people aware of some resources that we have both on our, our website and traveling to Israel. That's right, Jimmy. Prophecytoday.com. So that's our website. That's what we do. And of course, on this weekend radio program or on the podcast, if you're listening to the podcast, you'll hear us. We are talking about news coming out of Israel, coming out of the Middle East, and really from around the world on a geopolitical perspective, and just relating it to what the Bible says is going to take place in the end times. And this just lets us know how close we are to that end time scenario beginning to unfold. But another area where we have an expertise, and for so many years we have uh, been going to Israel. We understand the situation on the ground there in the Middle East, over all of the Middle East, and in Israel as well. And we're going to start going back. We've taken many tour groups over there uh, this fall. We look like we have two groups going, and then we are in 
the process of planning for many groups to go next year and even in 2024. It's going to be a busy time as people were not able to travel during COVID. Uh, if you'd like for us to plan a group for you or if you're interested in going to Israel, give us a call, uh, 423-825-6247 or toll free at 1-8-PROPHECY-8. That's prophecytoday.com and Joshua Travel. We're looking forward to being in Israel with you. Well, this week we're going to continue our legacy series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, where we'll be focusing on the three main events in the book of Revelation, the rapture, the return of Jesus Christ, and the great white throne judgment. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation to chapter 4, verse 1. And now, Dr. Jimmy D. Young. We see depicted here in chapter 4, verse 1, the rapture of the church. And let me illustrate it. Verse 1, uh, chapter 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And I heard, here's that phrase, as it were, a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither. And I will show thee the things which must be hereafter. This is depicting the rapture of the church. Notice it says, I heard as it were a trumpet talking with me. But I got to tell you something. I started playing trumpet when I was 14 years of age. I do have a box of ears, a handmade trumpet. But that trumpet never talked to me. <laughs> never did a trumpet talk to me. That's what it's saying here. I heard as it were a trumpet talking with me. There's that apocalyptic literature. You remember what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18? Jesus will shout. The archangel will shout. The trump of God will sound. And we'll be caught up to be with him in the air. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 53. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. You see, you use other biblical literature to interpret the apocalyptic phrase. So we see here in chapter 4, verse 1, John, in chapter 4, verse 1, he's on earth. Chapter 4, verse 2, he's in the throne room in the third heaven before the throne of God. He's translated into the heavenlies. And so the rapture is depicted. Now, the word rapture is not here. Nor is the word rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4 or 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, the word rapture is not in the Bible. But we don't do away with the principle of the rapture. It says in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, we shall be caught up. That word comes, uh, the word rapture actually comes from the Latin translation, the Vulgate, which says rapturo. We get that word. Now, don't get excited about the word not being there. In fact, the word trinity is not in the Bible either, so we believe in that. But the rapture is depicted here. Now, look at the last phrase of verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. We translate into the heavenlies, and then he said, John writing, I will show thee the things which must happen hereafter. So, after the rapture of the church, the next thing to happen after the rapture. Now, we're here before the rapture. And then there's going to be a period of time after the rapture. Over in chapter 11, if you're thinking notes and thinking about chapter 11 of the book of Revelation, it talks about in verse 3, two witnesses that come to power and they will give testimony for a period of 1260 days. That's 1260 days or three and a half years. That happens in the first half of the tribulation period. Chapter 12, verse 6 says, The Lord has prepared a place to protect the Jewish people. It's the place called Petra, the impregnable city in southern Jordan. And he protects them for 1260 days, which is another three and a half year period of time. Three and a half, three and a half, a seven year period of time after the rapture. 
Then we come to chapter 19. Look at chapter 19 with me just a moment. In chapter 19, we're going to see the second of the three main events that unfold during the tribulation period. Jesus Christ is going to mount a white horse. He's going to get on the horse and he is going to come out of the heavenlies down to the earth and we're going to be traveling with him. Chapter 19, if you look, verse 11. And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Look at verse 12. His eyes were as a flame of fire. That is a description of the person of Jesus Christ over in chapter 1. Look at verse 14. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. That's you and me who will come back to the earth. At the rapture, we go to the heavenlies. We're married to Jesus Christ. Notice what we have on here. Verse 14. Followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. That would be our wedding garment. Chapter 19, verse 8. That would represent our righteous acts. What we have done to receive glory from him for and rewards from him. And so this is the return. So you have the rapture, the seven-year period of time, the return. Look at chapter 20. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on that old dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Now we get another period of time after the return of Christ, a thousand-year period of time. Notice verse 4, and I saw thrones and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. Look at the last part of verse 4. And they lived and they reigned with Christ a thousand year period of time. Now notice up here just a moment, please. The next event, we're someplace just prior to it, the rapture of the church. There's a seven year period of time. There's the return of Jesus Christ. And then there's a thousand year period of time. This is the kingdom where he will rule and reign forever and ever from the city of Jerusalem. But he does that first for a thousand years on the earth. Now look at chapter 20, verse 11. This would be the third of the three events in the scriptures. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat upon it from whose face the earth and the heaven had fled away. Now wait a minute. The earth and the heavens flee from him. They have fled away. As John looks, there's no more heaven and no more earth. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10 says... The heavens and the earth presently as we know them, all three heavens, first, second, and third, will burn up. And as John looks, he sees a great white throne, but the heaven and the earth have fled away. Friends, this is the end of the world. This is when the end of the world takes place. The end of the world, if we're standing right here just prior to the rapture, is at least a thousand and seven years from now. Because the next thing to happen, the rapture. Then a seven-year period of time, terrible time of judgment upon the face of the earth. Then the return of Jesus Christ back to the Mount of Olives, city of Jerusalem. Then he builds a temple and rules and reigns for a thousand years. Then the end of the world comes. And why was the body of Christ so duped with the fact that Harold Camping was saying the end of the world was going to come. Why didn't we have an answer to those atheists who had rapture parties celebrating the demise of God and the untruthfulness of the Bible? Because we didn't have an understanding. You say, oh, Jimmy, this is so simple. I've heard it. Yes, but did we remember it? This is how 
the end times are going to unfold. May I show you three quick things? Let me take just a, a few more moments. Go here to chapter 6 of the book of Revelation. Chapter 6. In the book of Revelation, and I have a complete study, and if you're going to study Revelation, you need to study it chronologically. Don't do a study of Revelation numerically. That means chapters 1 to 22, chapter by chapter by chapter. Do it chronologically because Revelation unfolds chronologically, and you must grasp how it unfolds chronologically to really understand it, or it's going to be very confusing, as everybody says. There are, in this seven-year period of time, three sets of seven judgments. In the first half, there's going to be seven sealed judgments. In the last half, there will be seven trumpet judgments and seven vile judgments. This is chapter 6. This is chapters 8, 9, 10, excuse me, 8, 9, and 11, and this is chapter 16. You see how chronologically they unfold, but not numerically. The first of the judgments is going to be a man on a white horse. Chapter 6 and verse 1. Jesus Christ releases this seal. It's the first of the judgments. He said, and I saw the lamb open. That's Jesus Christ. One of the seals. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw him behold a white horse. And he that sat upon him. And a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. My friend, that is depicting the Antichrist. Yes, I know. Christ comes on a white horse at the end of the seven-year period of time. This is at the beginning of the seven-year period of time. This is a man on a white horse, crown on his head, bow in his hand, doesn't have any arrows because he's a man of peace at the beginning. In fact, the Bible says in Daniel 9, 27, he confirms a peace treaty between Israel and her neighbors. Hello, what is every world leader talking about? Peace in the Middle East. Ban Ki-moon, Secretary General of the United Nations, just re-elected to his second five-year term, failed to meet his goal in his first five-year term, which was to bring resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Two Sundays ago, I was in Washington, D.C. The Monday before that, the quartet got together, and they tried to put that peace treaty situation back on track. They failed. There's already three peace treaties on the table waiting to be confirmed. Everybody's talking about peace. And there's going to be one man who will come and accomplish it. I believe that man is alive and well on planet Earth. Listen, it doesn't matter. In the past, I have said, and I still agree with what I said, that I believe the possibility for that man of peace, because he is now Catholic after conversion, because he has an organization that is trying to bring resolution of world conflict through religion, because he's the peace envoy. But let me tell you this. Jesus Christ in Matthew 24 said this. You want to know the first sign for me coming back? The second coming, not the rapture. The second coming. The first sign, verse 4 of chapter 24 of Matthew, deception. Verse 5, deception. Verse 11, deception. Verse 24, deception. Deception! The Bible says in Matthew 24, 24, deception will be communicated through signs, wonders, and miracles. Revelation chapter 13 says the Antichrist will perform signs, wonders, and miracles. The false prophet, another member of the satanic trinity, will cause the world to worship the beast through signs, wonders, and miracles. I think the greatest evidence that the Antichrist is about to appear is happening in our so-called churches. Signs, wonders, and miracles. Don't you believe that Jesus can perform a miracle? I believe Jesus can do whatever he wants to. I don't tell Jesus what he does. I tell you what he says. He says, this will be the scene. 
for the Antichrist. The stage is indeed set for the Antichrist to appear. With the proliferation of signs, wonders, and miracles in our world today, and even in the church, the words of Jesus Christ echo down through history as truth, describing the times of the appearance of Antichrist. Remember, Jesus in his Olivet Discourse, that was Matthew 24, Jesus said that the first sign for Jews to be able to recognize the time of his coming, now I'm not talking about the rapture, but his coming back to the earth, was deception. Deception that would be communicated through signs, wonders, and miracles. This scenario is now prevalent in our world today. Please remember that the rapture happens seven years before the second coming. The rapture, in fact, could happen today. Make sure that you are ready. Next week, we'll conclude our study as we answer that question, when is the end of the world? Don't miss that study. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Let me remind you, if you would like any of these series, you can go to our website and click on our audio series. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. U.S. and EU envoys have urged Ethiopia's government to resume electricity and banking services in the Tigray region. Civil war had raged for months, displacing over 2 million people. Tigrayans have dealt with basic food shortages since June of 2021. Eric Foley with the Voice of the Martyrs Korea keeps in contact with Tigrayan Christians. One man planted a church in prison after being taken with no warning. Ask God to keep working in Ethiopia despite the suffering. And what happens when you send a Bible to Iran? Well, God uses it to change multiple lives. Heart for Iran's Mike Ansari says one woman received a Bible and sent it on to a troubled youth. A 15-year-old girl was contemplating suicide, and the woman told her, you don't want to commit suicide because God loves you. When the young girl began reading the Bible, everything changed. She came to Christ and found hope. Seven bucks sends a Bible to Iran. Visit our website to get involved. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., and along with Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. 
In our Legacy series, we took a look at the timeline, the order of events as they're going to play out as Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, the late Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, examined those uh, according to the book of Revelation. Rick, and really, that's what we use. We use God's Word for determining what our broadcast partners are examining. And uh, we use our understanding of Bible prophecy to help us do that. Well, that's correct. In fact, Jimmy, if you think about it, we could take a look at those main players. As you study the book of Revelation, you study the book of Daniel, and you see God's timeline of events and how things are going to take place. And you look at the main players, and then just kind of, while looking at them, look at what's taking place in the world Right now, current events, I mean, our talks with Ken Timmerman on the geopolitical issues, and of course we focused on China, and China will have a role to play in that future end-time scenario, won't they? It sure will. That's the kings out of the east, and that's Revelation chapter 16. We know that the shift of power, and I know that sometimes... So maybe it's not something that we make very clear, but according to what takes place after the rapture of the church and the beginning of the tribulation period, the shift of power from the United States, which very well could be non-existent going into the tribulation period. As things keep going forward, we've seen empires fall before, larger ones than the United States, much older ones, and the United States very well could not be here during the tribulation period. Uh, the reason I say that is because we understand that the Antichrist, that one world leader, talked about in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 9, Revelation chapter 13. We have mentioned him often, the Antichrist. He will use at least the revived Roman Empire, which is the European Union today. He'll use that as his power base and he will uh, protect Israel for the first three and a half years of the tribulation period from Nations like Russia, uh, Iran, uh, Syria, Egypt, uh, modern-day Turkey. When you look at those nations in Ezekiel 38 and uh, Daniel 11, Psalm 83, it will be the role of the Antichrist. Towards the end of the tribulation period, when the Antichrist and Satan, the false prophet, will gather all the nations of the world to Jerusalem, that's when China that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 16, when the mighty Euphrates River that runs through modern-day Iraq, when that dries up, China will make its way for the Battle of uh, Armageddon that will take place at the very end of the tribulation. So, yes, Rick, we focus on China because it is increasingly growing more powerful in our world, and they're asserting themselves and with the backing of these nations that are all mentioned in Bible prophecy. Jimmy, we also talked to Dave Dolan, and Dave brought up the issue of the attacks that are taking place right now. Israel seeking security has gone after a few terrorists, and that is basically sparking a war. It reminds us that we do need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but it also reminds us that this conflict over Israel and over Jerusalem, that was foretold a long time ago, and what's taking place right now is setting the stage for future prophecy to be fulfilled between the Jewish people and the Palestinians. When we look back, this conflict began all the way back in the book of Genesis with Jacob and Esau, the twin sons of Isaac, 
and as they grew, they were uh, going to be at odds with one another. That was prophesied that it would take place. And through history, we could see that the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, uh, came against Israel throughout the history. In fact, when we look at the book of Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel chapter 35 talks about the judgment, the little book of Obadiah on the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, or as we can uh, make that link today, the Palestinian people, uh, they will be uh, one group of people that will be as if they never were. And that is a prophecy that will be fulfilled in the future. Again, little book of Obadiah, Ezekiel chapter 35, we see this, and it's going to continue. There's never going to be at a time when these two groups of people, the Israelis today, the Palestinians, where they're going to work together. It's a religious conflict. Islam has become a large part of this conflict. The struggle for the city of Jerusalem for control of God's holy mountain 16 times in the scripture, and that is the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem. So we do see this conflict is going to continue. It will continue until the end of that seven-year period of time, the tribulation that we always talk about, and that will be right before Christ returns to the earth at his second coming. Don't be confused. The rapture and the second coming are two different events uh, separated by at least seven years. And I say at least seven years, Rick, because we don't know how long it will be after the rapture before the, the tribulation period begins. It could be two days, two weeks, two months, two years, 20 years. Uh, there's no timeline given that what begins that seven-year period of time is the confirmation of uh, the peace treaty that the Antichrist confirms with Israel. And uh, it's his role to protect the Jews in that three and a half years, the first three and a half years of the tribulation. As we watch a world events, we're watching all of these things take place. And of course, Jimmy, we do know that God did have a plan for the Jewish people, for the children of Israel. And that plan was not because they were obedient. It wasn't because they'd earned it. It was because he chose them as his people to glorify him. And we're reminded of maybe some of the punishment that came about them for disobedience. And one of those was on Tisha B'Av. And as we look at the temple and the destruction of the temple, which was prophecy fulfilled in 70 AD, we have also talked to uh, Winky and even addressed it a little with Dave Dolan about the future temple and the basically the collective consciousness of the uh, Jews in Israel right now becoming excited for the next temple. We focus on it as believers because God says that there will be a temple standing during the tribulation period. So this is why we focus on an event that took place with the destruction of the temple 70 AD. That was almost 2000 years ago plus. So as we take a look at that and we're focusing on that and the rebuilding of one, it is all that the prophecies in the past were foretold. They came true exactly as they were given. The prophecies in the future will be fulfilled exactly as they're given. And that's what helps us to keep our eyes on the event of the rapture, which I believe is the next thing. Rick, we believe that the rapture is the very next thing to take place before this tribulation period and the temple can all be standing in the city of Jerusalem. And that's why we do this program. We use this to motivate us to live a pure, productive life 
holy life in an unholy world and to understand that the urgency of the hour is to evangelize. Rick, thanks so much for joining with me this week. I look forward to being with you again next week. My pleasure, Jimmy, and I look forward to it as well. Folks, with so much happening in our world today, let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Thank you.